Whiskey for the Ages is not sponsored or endorsed for any product or program mentioned in this show and receive no remuneration from their creators. for listening in. We think, or maybe it's just me, we've got an interesting show lined up for you tonight. In this episode, we're going to talk whiskey history, and in particular, the early years of American whiskey. I think a lot of people don't really know too much about the history. For me, I think it's really interesting. There's a lot going on in that time frame. Most certainly, because I think that there's so much in early American history where whiskey played a really, really big part, right? Absolutely. But of course, before we jump right in, I hope everyone in Listerland have their glasses full. If not, fill that favorite vessel, sit back, and enjoy our show. Girls, what are you drinking? So tonight I've got George Remus Single Barrel. Uh, as I understand it now, it's just called Remus Single Barrel. We cracked this one open just last night, or I cracked it open accidentally, thinking that it was the 94 proof straight bourbon. Figured out only afterwards, nope, I grabbed the cask strength, the single barrel, and it turned into a whole review. Knowing George Remus being a little bit a part of history, uh, just kind of happened to be a happy accident, as, as Bob Ross would say. So I thought I'd dip back into it for this Whiskey History one, and do be looking forward to our review on the George Remus single barrel. That happy accident turned into an impromptu review that we all did last night on it. Yeah, it was <laughs> a good one. It's a it pretty was... good one, so yeah. I figured I'd jump back into it tonight. Well, Laura, what you got? I have James Pepper Rye. I don't know much about it, so I'm going to let my dad uh, take the reins on that one. This one was one of our uh, local whiskey club's private barrel picks. If you'll recall from last episode, we had Chris and Ben on the show. Both of them are from the Boise Whiskey Enthusiasts Club, Chris being the founder of it. And this was one of the barrels that the group as a whole put in for. We got to reap the benefits of a really good rye. And I went way back. As far back as I had a bottle, I think. This one, I opened a bottle of Knob Creek Private Select that Idaho State Liquor Division purchased back in 2019. This is a Knob Creek rye at 120 proof. And I believe it was selected by the bartender at the Capitol Bar down, down the street from us. So this was going to be... One I haven't had in, wow, four years? Four years, Could yeah. Could it be four years? Yeah, that's so, really cool. So history, we're going to have some fun with this. You're especially very excited. Oh, absolutely. 
Definitely. And back when we were deciding on our podcast format, we kept thinking about all of the different themes and topics that we could cover in the entirety of our series. One of those things that we kind of kept coming back to was this history idea. That's right. History is one of my favorite topics. And I'll be taking the lead here. And I'm sure the girls are going to do their best to keep the discussion lively. (laughs) At least I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm excited for this. Like I said at the start of this, there's so much going on in whiskey history that not a lot of people know about. And I'm sure there's a lot that I don't know about that I'm going to get to hear tonight. So, And I love history. Anything that has to do with the forming of a nation or forming of a culture... I'm really invested in it, so I'm excited. long time ago, I learned a little bit about the whiskey and how the history of America is all tied together. I hope you guys will be amazed tonight. Let's jump right in. I'm going to step away from whiskey for a minute and say (laughs) Benjamin Franklin loved his wine, the company of women and fine food, but he disapproved of drunkenness. He deemed it a nasty vice. In January of 1737, he published his Drinker's Dictionary under the pen name Silence Do Good. That reminds me of uh, National Treasure, the Silence Do Good letters. Exactly. They're part of the the cipher. They go to uh, Philadelphia, I think, to go look at them. That's pretty cool. So letter number 12 began proclaiming, there is nothing more like a fool than a drunken man. And then he went on, drunkenness is a very unfortunate vice. It bears no kind similitude with any sort of virtue and can be expressed by roundabout phrases and perpetually varying those phrases. Are we sure that Ben Franklin wasn't drunk when he wrote that? Because he was a jokester. (laughs) In fact, I will spill a little bit of history here. When all the founding fathers were old, back in like the 1800s, so after the Declaration, they openly admitted that they did not want Benjamin Franklin to write the Declaration of Independence because they thought he'd be putting in way too many jokes. <laughs> so they entrusted it to someone who would actually take it pretty seriously, although I do think that it would be very intriguing to read a Ben Franklin Declaration of Independence. <laughs> I want to know those jokes. In his letter, he included over 200 synonyms for drunkenness. Some of those we might uh, find familiar today. Like, maybe he's addled, or boozy, or buzzy, he's intoxicated, in the suds, or stewed. Wow. So he kind of dubbed those phrases like Shakespeare dubbed some phrases as well. Sure. But then there were quite a few that I think were kind of strange to us now. He's biggie. He's fuddled. Muddled. (laughs) He's lost his senses. He's sold his senses. Lost his rudder. Drunk as a wheelbarrow. (laughs) His head is full of bees. Been too free with Sir John Strawberry. And then this one is halfway to Concord. I wonder what the heck was going on in Concord. It might have been the Vegas of the town. We don't know. (laughs) There were 228 of these. That is crazy. You know what? I believe it. He was very wordy. But he also said there cannot be good living where there is no good drinking. 
Why do I bring up this? Well, drinking was prevalent in early America, and whiskey cannot be blamed. It was beer. And it seems as though everyone was involved. It's said that on average, every man, woman, and child consumed as much as one to one and a half gallons of beer a day. Well, a lot of those people were <clears throat> farmers. And, okay, you know, yeah. you, you get so many carbs and so much energy from that. And, you know... You just let it ferment? You just well, let it... Well, that's just yep. part of your daily rations. Just yep. get through the day. You're rewarded with beer. You get carbs. Kind of your holy grail for a farmer. So back on the Mayflower, the pilgrims brought with them 42 tons of beer. I don't know if that was enough. <laughs> 10, I mean, you're starting, you're starting a new country. You're going to need a little more. Yeah. But they're the pilgrims. The Puritans. 10,000 gallons of wine, about 40 tons, and only 14 tons of water. Beer really? was actually safer to drink than the water because the water would grow algae in it before they would get uh, to the country. Yeah, so yeah. drinking beer, cider, and spirits with high alcohol levels kept bacteria away. That's why everybody was drinking it. Well, and so many people, too, from where they were coming from, cholera was a really yeah. big problem. Yeah. You know, the, the water that's in your, your yeah. sewer, your sewage system, is absolutely dreadful. So yeah. you, you need something other than water to stay hydrated. <laughs> and back then, to keep their water as sanitary as they could, they boiled the hell out of it. Yeah, yeah that too. And they made beer. So the pilgrims were accomplished brewers. Their brewing skills actually influenced the brewing of beer in the entire colonies. They brought their knowledge of beer making from England, and while the exact recipes they've used are long been lost to history, they used the local ingredients of corn and molasses. So where the heck did the molasses come from? From the Caribbean. Okay. But all up and down the coast, they were bringing molasses and stopping along the way. So when the first immigrants arrived on the continent, a chain of spirited events began. <laughs> I see what you did there. The old classic dad joke. In addition to beer, colonial settlers brewed peach brandy and hard cider from apples and distilled rum from that molasses that was imported mm -hmm. from the Caribbean. All of that makes sense. Yep. All yeah. of that makes sense. Yep. The houses they built were outfitted with kitchen breweries. So the women could make beer as soon as possible. And they needed to. I mean, the the men would be working out in the fields, and that, yep. like what you said, Hannah, it was a part of their diet. Yep. Yep. So they built breweries and then followed with taverns. The tavern, or the public house, was often the very first building that the communities built. The public house was a community center, a church, a courtroom, a marketplace, and taverns served as places to spread the news and rest stops for travelers. Families didn't have visitors in their house. <laughs> their houses were only 12 by 12 or 16 by 16, so there wasn't much room for anything else. Oh, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I could not do it. And by 1810, the first brewing sentence enumerated 132 licensed brew houses, including 48 in Pennsylvania, 42 in New York, and 13 in Ohio. Okay, wow. Er Early brewing and distilling led to the creation of American whiskeys. Now think about this. Early farmers used grain to feed their cattle and farms. Right. Uh, farm animals, right? right? 
occasionally there had to be a bumper crop. In other words, they had extra grain. And after they bartered with all their neighbors, you know, keep them in their daily bread, there'd be leftover grain. So what do you do with it? Well, you make beer. Uh -huh. And beer was made in large quantities in the 1600s. But there was no pasteurization. So the beer didn't keep long. So they brewed small batches of beer every day. But that still would last longer than leaving the grain itself raw out. You've got to do something with it because it will rot. Exactly. True. Exactly. So the colonialists wanted their own liquor. <laughs> stills were commonplace in Scottish farms back in the mid-1500s. So home stills, you know, they're small. They're barrel-sized or smaller. They're usually enclosed copper pots with a metal pipe or two coming out the top. And it coiled down into a receptacle to catch the condensed spirit. That sounds a lot like modern day yep. bourbon producing. Yep. yep. Modern yep. day whiskey. So it hasn't changed that much. Nothing nope. has changed. It's a simple process. Yep. That's how liquor works. Now, if I may apply for a little linguistic license here, girls. Oh, boy. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. The word whiskey is derived from the Gaelic word whiskaba. We sure are we saying that right? Whiskaba. Yep. Okay. Whiskaba which means water of life. I've heard that. If one were to say whiskaba quickly enough, whiskaba, whiskaba, or with some quantity of liquid in the system, <laughs> it becomes, with a little shortening, whiska, whiska, which, when anglicanized, becomes whiskey. Nice. So there's where the word comes from. And distilling grain gave farmers two distinct avenues of profit. The distillate, by virtue of having a high concentration of alcohol, can be stored almost indefinitely. And then liquor is relatively easy to transport. Way much easier than, say, huge sheaves of grain or rye. One horse could carry about four bushels of grain. But that same horse could carry one 60-gallon barrel of whiskey, or whatever was distilled. About 24 bushels of grain. And... To profit from the leftover grain, a farmer could barter as much as possible with his immediate neighbors, chop down a few trees from their land, get those trees to the local cooper, have some sturdy barrels made. Of course, every settlement had a cooper or two. And then send that wagon load of whiskey off to thirsty buyers farther away. Since there wasn't much in the way of entertainment back then, almost everyone was interested in a dram of whiskey. And the solids left behind from the distillate were still usable as cattle feed. <laughs> so, for farmers, producing whiskey was good business. Sounds like it was a really good economy. Yeah. Yep. Of whiskey. Yeah. Yep. It was money. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Bartering. Still, most farmers, they would distill the grain, but they weren't doing huge business. They was just making some for themselves, their neighbors, and so on. But whiskey production was here to stay. Records show distilling began in the early 17th century, and most whiskey at the time was made from rye. Why was that? Well, here's a brief history. In Europe, rye, which is related to barley, was the poor man's staple grain. Rye was prevalent in what later became New York, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia because it was easy to grow. Barn. Which kind of leads to what we talked about a few episodes ago with the Maryland and Pennsylvania rise. So Plus that's, that's kind of where they started then. And the terrain would have allowed for it. I mean, when the colonists came over 
to America, they one of the very first things that they discovered was that the terrain sucked. <laughs> it was tough. Yeah. Well, barley was also grown here, but it was tough to grow. It took time for the barley to become acclimatized in the colonies. Rye, on the other hand, flourished. It was almost a weed. It was a hardy crop. It grew well. It took root and fared well almost everywhere. Europeans were familiar with rye, so they used it as the next best thing to barley. Naturally, the early distillers would make all rye whiskey. In the early days, rather than naming their product for themselves like they do now, they would call it from the area that it was distilled. Maryland rye, Pennsylvania rye, like you said, yeah. or Mungahela rye. Whiskey making was one of the first cottage industries in America. While origins of the first rye whiskey are lost in time, there is a contender for the first corn whiskey. And Virginia lays claim to that. The first documented batch of corn whiskey was produced in 1620, made by the English settler George Thorpe, Near Jamestown. That's like I think I've actually right, heard of him. That, that's like right when we are really kicking it off here. I mean, obviously we've been here for a while, but we got the Jamestown settlement, early 17th century. That really is the beginning of... 1607 was when they first came in. So yeah. 13 we're, years we're, later. We're, we're right there. So George Thorpe was born in Wainswell Court, on the family estate back in England in 1576. Before coming to the colonies, he studied law, was a noted landowner, was a justice of the peace, was a member of parliament, a distiller, and of course he was an educator. Back in 1614, George Thorpe was a major investor in the Virginia Company of London. That's why I know. I thought it sounded familiar. Yeah? Yeah. He was related both by blood and marriage to some of the distinguished men of the Jamestown colony. Thorpe was a religious man, and he became interested in the conversion of the native peoples. Thorpe formed a partnership with influential colonists, and he was able to take ownership of some land in Virginia on a private plantation. Shortly thereafter, he sold his English property and set sail for Virginia. He arrived in March of 1620. So there, Thorpe was introduced to the natives and probably, more importantly, to their corn. In the fall of 1620, he's a busy man, George Thorpe was said to have distilled a batch of corn beer. George Thorpe is credited with the distillation of the first batch of whiskey made from the Indian corn, which he substituted for barley. He sent a letter dated December 19, 1620, to his partner back in England, John Smythe of Nibley. Thorpe assured his partner of his good health and went on to say he had found a way to make so good drink of Indian corn that was better than good, strong English beer. <laughs> and this was just nine months after he had arrived. He took just that nine first months. took that first Very productive. Crop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Yeah. He said, I can do this. I'm gonna get some good Indian corn. I'm making beer. Making whiskey. 
The letter is widely regarded to be the first documented record of distillation. Hmm. So therefore, his drink of Indian corn is the ancestor of all corn-made moonshine and by loose association bourbon. So it's the common ancestor. The first documented filing for a commercial distillery came in 1640. It was built by William Kieft, the director general of the New Netherland Colony, which we all have come to learn that it's New York. The distillery was run by Wilhelm Hendrickson, and it is said he used both corn and rye in his whiskey. It's probably unlikely it was aged very long. He was just putting product out More for people. More of like a moonshine sort of thing. As probably. soon as it's distilled, send it out. Which tracks, because you just said earlier that they didn't really make beer for the whole entire colonies yet. They were yep. just making it for their local groups. Mm -hmm. Yep. That tracks. So the first families of whiskey. So we're going to expose some folks here. There was a ship named the Mary Hope. It sailed from London to Philadelphia in 1710. It carried the Martin Kindig family, who were Swiss, and Martin Kindig took out a patent for three tracts of land in 1711, totaling 530 acres, and actually paid cash to William Penn in Pennsylvania. The Kindigs were early settlers, and they found themselves in Lancaster County, which is in western Pennsylvania. Along with them was a family known as the Oberholzers. They were German. They also settled in Lancaster County. Then in 1714, the same ship carried a family known as the Bohems. It's said that half the ship was from this family. So Henrik Oberholzer later Anglicanized to become Henry Overholt. Oh, that's a familiar name. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was an early colonial whiskey distiller. He was the founder of the Overholt Whiskey Distillery in southwest Pennsylvania. The family processed the rye they grew on their farm, and Henry's son, Abraham Overholt, encouraged the production of rye in 1810. At the time, the rye whiskey was produced for medicinal purposes. The Overholts were the first to produce rye whiskey for commercial consumption. The Overholts, like the Kindigs, were Mennonites, and the church did not approve of Overholts' old farm whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Yet the family business expanded, and one of Abraham's sons built a second distillery. Now, I find this kind of interesting. That second distillery, along with the first... They were producing a product called Mungahela Rye, which much later became Old Overholt. But both distilleries prospered and got more land. They got were able to grow more crop. And with that second distillery, they were producing as much as eight gallons a day. <laughs> which is a whopping four times more than they had before they had the second distillery. I think it's really cool that that's where that particular line started. I mean, we still have Old Overholt today, and it's yep. a, I'm sure it's not the same recipe well, that was, not. you know, done back then. But I think it's really cool that the name has perpetuated this whole time. It is the oldest continuing brand of whiskey in America. See, now that's, that's, really just, cool. that's just amazing. Yep. I Eight, got a new appreciation amazing. for it now. 1810. And it's like a 
under 20 bucks. Something so 20, like that. It's like a $20 <laughs> rye. Yeah. A really good one, too. Yeah. So at Henry's death, his sons, Abraham and Christian, inherited the family farm and the distillery business, and together they continued to enlarge the distillery. And that's largely because there was rising demand. They were now able to produce almost 200 gallons of rye whiskey <laughs> per day. And soon after, Abraham bought out Christian's shares and in the mid-1800s went into business with his two sons, Jacob and Henry. And at that time, Abraham renamed the business the Abraham Overholt and Company. So in a way, they were also the first whiskey legacy, like generational. Yes. Mm -hmm. So family traditions yep. carrying... They were the first to do that. That's so really remember cool. earlier I mentioned in 1712, the Mary Hope brought the Boehms. Jacob Boehm was born in 1640 in Switzerland. Uh, the family friend, Martin Kindig, remember from above, wrote the glowing descriptions of the land here in Pennsylvania. The Boehms were one of seven families on Mary Hope's 1712 passage. Jacob also settled in what is now Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Barbara Kendig, Martin's daughter, later married Jacob Beam II. They had a son, Johannes, John, and Abraham. Boehm's Lancaster descendants split into three branches in about 1757. Keep in mind, this is slightly before uh, Revolutionary War times. Yeah. Jacob deeded his son, John, a farm in Virginia. John was the first of three sons to leave Lancaster County in Pennsylvania, and there he operated a grist mill and a distillery. John and his wife moved their family to Virginia, and after relocating in Virginia, John sold the farm and the mill to his brother Abraham. John was the father of another Jacob, Jacob III. John, he Jacob, Jingleheimer. <laughs> Sorry, just had to. Yep. He was born near Frederick, uh, Maryland in 1768. In Virginia, Jacob also was a miller and learning skills from his father was also a distiller. Now, Jacob Beam III, now Anglicanized to Beam, oh my goodness, went to Kentucky in 1785 with milling and distilling business knowledge. The documents show he built his first distillery three years later and the Beam family records say that Jacob sold his first barrel of whiskey in 1795. It was Jacob that founded the Beam dynasty. That. So Jim Beam. Yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> so a few other whiskey men. Okay, there's a bunch of people. They appeared in Kentucky before the 1800s, before the Beams got there. So when the Marylanders and the Pennsylvanians and the Virginians and everybody else got to Kentucky, they were met with a bunch of guys who were already there. So one might ask, who's the first whiskey man in Kentucky? Well, nobody knows for sure. Well, of course. Okay. Yeah. There's no documentation who did it first. However, there were some names that maybe some of us might recognize. There was a guy by the name of John Ritchie. He built a distillery in Nelson County. Well, if you can picture the map of Kentucky, Nelson County is right about in the middle of the state, and it's near modern-day Bardstown. Ritchie is credited with making the first sour mash whiskey. Hmm. 
Now, sour mash simply means you take a little bit of the distillate that's left over, and then you start a new batch from that. That like sourdough, you have yeah. a starter. Oh, okay. okay. So okay. it's not sour whiskey. It's just they called it sour mash because it's the starter. Oh, that's cool. Okay. In 1780, he and his companions loaded their flatbed boat with whiskey and made one of the first trips to New Orleans, where they sold the entire boatload at a huge profit. <laughs> then there was a guy by the name of Waddy Boone. He was a relative of Daniel. He made whiskey in Nelson County. Elijah Pepper. Laura's drinking some James Pepper tonight. It's fairly good. He was responsible for doing James Pepper and Old Crow. They settled near Old Pepper Springs in the Kentucky Territory in 1776. Robert Samuels, he's the father of Maker's Mark. He arrived in Kentucky in 1780. Of course, he set up his still shortly thereafter. There's Evan Williams. He built a distillery near Louisville in 1783. So this is really, like, and Kentucky as a state, I believe, became a state in, what was it, like, 1792. Yeah, so, oh, I mean, okay. they are really the backbone of what Kentucky is. Yes. These guys. That's yes. really cool. Gives Kentucky bourbon yep. a whole other meaning. Basil Hayden, he got there in 1785, and sometime between there and 1796, he started, uh, working with old granddad. And then, of course, one everybody knows, Elijah Craig, mm -hmm. Baptist minister, arrived in Kentucky in 1786. Within a few years of his arrival, Craig had established himself as a prominent entrepreneur and a land speculator. Craig acquired approximately 1,000 acres in Scott County where he laid out the town of Georgetown. Today it's known as Lebanon. Historians have credited him with establishing Kentucky's first paper mill, the earliest saw and grist mill, a rope walk. I actually had to look up what a rope walk was. I'd never heard of one, but it's a means to twist cords into making rope. Oh, okay. A fulling mill, and I had to look this up, a fulling mill is a stamping mill where you would put pieces of cloth and cotton and whatever into a, a large vat of water and pound it and put pressure on it, and it essentially was a means for making cloth. Hmm. Okay. He also had the first ferry across the Kentucky River. And then among his other enterprises, he was a distiller. <laughs> Craig's fame derives largely from his position as the Baptist minister who created bourbon. Now, there is no evidence he developed any formula for bourbon, and nor did he ever say that he created bourbon. Somewhere along the line, we just said he did. There's a lot of different distilleries and fathers of bourbon that kind of all had their hands in what makes bourbon bourbon and all of these different experiments that they they conducted. But Elijah Craig really is kind of among one of the popular picks for and it, bourbon. It could be because he was such an entrepreneur. It's, I mean, he did yeah, so he, many things. It sounds like he really did a lot. Yeah. Mm hmm he built his distillery in what was then called Fayette County. Its location later became part of Woodford County in 1789, and then Scott County in 1792. 
His distillery was never in a place called Bourbon County. Craig has sometimes been credited as the first person to age whiskey in charred oak casks, which gives bourbon its brownish color and unique taste. But again, there's no documentation anywhere that he was the guy that did it. Now, Craig did distill a significant quantity of whiskey from corn. Historical records from 1798 indicate he paid a whopping $140 in federal excise taxes, which was really a healthy sum back in those days. And the tax was for payment on about 2,000 gallons of whiskey that he had made that year. Now, taxes at the time were seven cents per gallon. So that's where our country started making money. There was a guy named Henry Wathen. He helped keep that old granddad label alive, and he began distilling in whiskey in 1788. The Brown family, from the old Forrester group, settled there in 1792. And then some guy named Daniel Weller, from the the W.L. Weller bourbon line, floated into Bardstown on a flatboat in 1794. It's so interesting because, you know, this is in the 18th century and we're able to trace all these popular names that we have today, like Weller, Jim Beam, Old Forester, all the way back there. Like, what a collection of generations. So by 1786, the whiskey we now call bourbon was known as Kentucky or Western whiskey. Kentucky whiskey was somewhat lighter than rye, and it became the whiskey that the new Kentuckians called their own. People could easily distinguish it from the ryes of Pennsylvania, Mungahela, and Maryland. So we've, we've used that word a lot, Mungahela. What is that? It's an Indian name. Okay. It's from the area that the Mungahela Indians lived. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. And were, were their style of rye any different or was it just the rye that was grown in that area exactly okay that's exactly same with pennsylvania rye or maryland rye so it's a locational thing it's a locational thing now in 1786 bourbon county was created from a large chunk of what was previously virginia's fayette county both fayette and bourbon counties were named in honor of the revolutionary war general gilbert Du Montier Marquis Lafayette. He was a French aristocrat of the Royal House of Bourbon. Okay, so that's where the name Bourbon has come from. I have been meaning to ask that. Bourbon is named after a guy, not a thing. But isn't there a city in France by the name of Bourbon? Well, a house of Bourbon would be, I think a lot of families in Europe. Now, I'm sure I'm totally wrong here, but a lot of the locations there, if you were from a specific house, that entire region would kind of be named after your yep. house. Yep. So, like so, Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it could very well be that his family name was on the land of Bourbon. I'm yeah. sure that's how they said yeah. it. Yeah, I don't Bourbon. speak French. <laughs> Sorry to any French speakers out there. <laughs> So you had mentioned earlier that uh, Kentucky became a state. It was the 15th state in the Union, and it happened in 1792. If it wasn't Elijah Craig who burned those cacks, who did? Well, nobody knows. 
But there's a bunch of theories. If someone's going to make a barrel, they're going to take straight staves from a from trees. They're going to cut them in various different uh, widths and so on. But they need to be heated so they can bend into the shape we all know as a barrel. So the reason why they heat them is so that they can bend and get those metal bands stamped on them. As they tighten, they push the staves closer together, which forms a watertight or in this case, a whiskey-tight seal. Coopers have been forming barrels over fire this way ever since barrels came about. In this way, the staves are toasted when they're being made, and that makes them bow. Wines also aged in toasted barrels. Mm -hmm. All casks are toasted before they're charred. A popular anecdote is a careless Cooper may have accidentally let his staves catch fire. <laughs> and conveniently forgot to tell the distiller, hey, I made a mistake on these barrels, but they're all closed up. You won't need to worry about it. <laughs> the whiskey man might likely have noticed an improvement in his liquor, thinking it was all him, and then later figured out what had happened. And from that day on, whiskey makers just preferred the charred barrels. Of course, it's just a story, but there might be some truth in it. It is a fact distillers need to store their whiskey in tight or leak-proof barrels. So tight barrels were used to store everything from water, molasses, linseed oil, tar. You know, tight bar barrels were valuable, and therefore they were often used again. Used barrels were less expensive to get than new ones, and maybe as a matter of routine, the distillers simply lit a fire in the barrels to burn the insides out so you didn't have any lingering odors from the linseed oil or the dirt or whatever else might have been in there. Clean it with fire. Clean it with fire. <laughs> There's a book in the United Distillers Archives in Louisville which does mention charred barrels. However, that cover is missing off the book and there's no printed date anywhere on the pages. <laughs> Convenient. <laughs> There is a handwritten note on one of the pages, which does reference the year 1854. The book is full of questions and answers on many different subjects, and one of them are, why are water and wine casks charred on the inside? And the answer is because charring on the inside of a cask reduces the wood to charcoal. Charcoal absorbs animal and vegetable impurities, and keeps liquor sweet and improves the flavor. Correct. So it's yeah. known yeah, by 1854, yeah. but we just don't know when that book was written. I mean, it could be even later. They just could be referencing 1854 for something that happened in could 1854. Be. Be. So the practice we now know of using charred casks it was to produce bourbon as we know it. Where did aging come in? This becomes a, uh, a lesson in just geography and uh, seasons. In the latter part of the 18th century, when a distiller made whiskey and he wanted to sell it as quickly as possible, he needed money. And the best way to get the money is get it to a town who needed whiskey. Today, we know when whiskey spends time in a barrel, it becomes fuller. It develops character. The sharp bite of young moonshine kind of mellows. 
Well, even in the late 1700s, there must have been people who stored and realized that their whiskey tasted better as time went by. Although the practice of choosing to keep whiskey in the wood didn't become more commonplace until the mid-19th century, it makes you wonder, so when did whiskey makers begin aging their products? Well, in the late 1790s, documents indicate John Ritchie, remember him from above, <coughs> and Elijah Craig were shipping whiskey on flatboats down to New Orleans. By 1804, and typical of the time, boats from Pennsylvania, Kentucky, and Tennessee would have to wait until the rivers would rise before embarking downriver. In those days, and frankly up until quite recently, most distilling was done during the cool autumn months, right after crops were harvested. The rivers would be low at that time. Right. So the whiskey men would have to put their distillate in the, in the barrels and then leave them sit. So sometime in September, October, November, when it was all made, they had to sit and couldn't begin their trip until April, <laughs> when the rivers rose. By the time it made its way to the French Quarter, known as Bourbon Street, it could be eight to nine months old. Not long enough for the wood to really soothe that soul completely, but long enough to lose some of that harshness. So the best theory is whiskey makers tasted their products after the journey downriver and learned aging improves whiskey. I suppose that's a good theory, but I, I find it, I don't know, I, I, I like a parsimonious answer that if you're creating whiskey as an alternative to storing raw grain as an alternative to storing beer that will expire quickly and you're making two gallons a day you're not drinking two gallons a day <laughs> are you though so i mean they there was a part of their diet not whiskey beer beer so oh, okay. if you're if you're storing the whiskey and it's building up i would have to think that you're recognizing as you're adding to your barrel, to your pile, whatever it is, that it's getting better with time. I'd have to add to that as well. You said Ben Franklin was a huge fan of wine. Well, wine would probably have to have been aged at that time too. Absolutely. Yeah. So then they're just adapting that idea yeah. to normal I, I, alcohol. Yeah. It's logical. Yeah. Very logical. But, you know, some people just have to have a name. They want to know who is first. Well, if one has to have a name, every straight two-year-old bourbon produced today is a sour mash whiskey. Uh, much like a sourdough starter, like Laura had said. Or rather, Hannah had said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Therefore, to determine who produced the first bourbon whiskey, sour mash has to enter the picture. Talked about John Ritchie. He did that back in 1775. There was a guy by the name of Dr. James Crow. He was a Scotsman working as a distiller in Kentucky around 1823. Crow was a man of science and medicine. He experimented using the setback or the sour mash as a control in his whiskey making process. The scientific method. Gotta have a control. Crow had the scientific knowledge and could intelligently tinker with various aspects of his process to make the better whiskey. Crow used corn as the predominant grain. 
and he also insisted on aging it in charred casks. He has always been hailed as the man who not only made good bourbon, but knew exactly why his bourbon was good. Crow's whiskeys were Old Crow and Old Pepper. The stuff that I'm drinking. Yeah. They were extremely popular during the Civil War. So, for those who insisted on having a name, one could argue James Crow invented bourbon sometime between 1823 and 1845 by combining everything other people had already done before him. There is no James Crow, Jim Crow connection. The names are just coincident, and they're not linked in any way. I like the Elijah Craig story. <laughs> mm -hmm. I like the Elijah Craig story. Mm -hmm. Yep. Now, back to those early years of the nation, back in 1777, George Washington was concerned that his troops didn't have enough liquor. The father of our country really knew how to take care of his children. <laughs> Washington suggested public distilleries need to be constructed, citing the benefits arising from the moderate use of strong liquor have been experienced in all armies and are not to be disputed. So in modern talk, what does that mean? <laughs> He's seen that alcohol helps the troops. Okay, great. Thank you. In fact, he had a ration of liquor given to every man at Valley Forge through the entire winter. And some people believe that's why the soldiers stayed. Because they got a ration every day. Huh. That's nice. <laughs> Washington knew all about distilling liquor. In the 1770s, he erected stills in his home at Mount Vernon to produce rum. Later... James Anderson, his Scottish plantation manager, persuaded Washington to plant rye with a mine to produce the whiskey. Before his death in 1799, he had earned a considerable profit from that distillery and at his passing had upwards of 150 gallons of whiskey in storage. Essentially, a couple of casks. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so today... If you were to go to George Washington's Mount Vernon Distillery website, they have a recipe called the Classic Recipe for Whiskey. It was copied from the American distiller by a Michael Kraft in 1804, and this is that recipe. Into each cask or hogshead, about one cask of 59 to 66 U.S. gallons, throw nine gallons of water heated to 90 degrees of Fahrenheit's thermometer, to which add 40 pounds of Indian corn meal. Agitate the mass briskly. Let it stand for two hours, that it may open and prepare the grain for dissolution. Now, 12 gallons of boiling water are added, and briskly worked with an oar. <laughs> We're MacGyvering it. Yeah. <laughs> then suffered to stand for 15 minutes. On top of this, four gallons of lukewarm water are gently poured and 10 pounds of malt gently worked on the top so as not to intermix with the cornmeal, which is in that state suffered to stand 30 minutes. I like the jargon, which is suffered to stand. Yeah. Meant to stand. Yep. Patience. <laughs> <laughs> 
patience. Then 14 gallons more boiling water are added to the mass and worked as before. This, in that state, is suffered to stand 60 minutes. Then 40 pounds of rye meal are now added. Oh my gosh. And worked what? well. And just as before, the whole mass <laughs> is suffered to stand <laughs> from two to four hours. We're just adding time. It's just time. Suffer it. sounds yep. like the Irish rover of whiskey, honestly. Yep. Like five million. In proportion to the state of the weather, the calculation is when cold water filled to within six inches of the top of the cask, will bring down the whole mass to 75 degrees. <laughs> it is now yeasted, covered, and left until fit for the still. That's quite a lot. You know, I got to say, for an old recipe, that is extremely thorough. So yep. a lot Guys. of the times, the, the, the old recipes will just be, bake it. <laughs> yeah. And that's about it. But so this was really thorough. Yeah. So guys, considered. if you ever want to make this classic style of whiskey, that's your recipe. That's your recipe. But I do see why they shortened it because honestly, if I had to sit through every single bread recipe and have it be like, it is suffered to prove for <laughs> 55 minutes, I would be like, suffered to prove, suffered to bake. Like, come on. All right. So that's our, our history of whiskey. Yeah. I can't wait to see where we go if we continue this theme, this topic, in our future season. Like, each season is its own chapter of yep. the whiskey story. Yeah, it could go, like, era to era. With era to era. Yeah, yeah. There, there you go. Well, this first era might have been a little long, but there was so much going on that you have to provide a foundation. And that's really what I tried to do. There's a lot of names there, a lot of people that we recognize today. A lot of them for their whiskey prowess, some for other reasons. I think it's really cool as a whole that whiskey has been able to perpetuate from that time to today. I don't know how many other brands of other products... You know, you go to the grocery store and you're buying something off the shelf. Does it have the history of 250 years? I don't think so. Does it have the history of 300 plus years? I don't think so. I mean, that's just, that's really crazy to me. Well, think about it. 1620. Yeah. We are now We're 400 years of whiskey making, of in, whiskey America. making in America. Well, I've got three short stories tonight. One is glassware. I've got another one about a state struggling with allocated product purchases. Is it Idaho? No. Oh, well, I feel like it should something be could be said there. Yep. But <laughs> And my lead story, a distillery that's working with farmers. Woodford Reserve supports Kentucky rye farmers. So Brown Foreman owned Woodford has announced a five-year commitment to purchase grain from local farmers, specifically rye. And the effort is to keep rye production in Kentucky. 
Now, I've been to Kentucky, and in the summer, it's extremely humid and hot. They are not ideal conditions for producing rye. So four farmers are actually going to be working with the University of Kentucky over the next five years to develop a strain of rye that can grow in Kentucky. They're going to be doing sensory tests on this in small trials on these 10 varieties of rye to determine flavor nuances and how they impact bourbon. Master distiller Elizabeth McCall states that if a rye can be brought back to Kentucky, it would also support the farmers and give them a sustainable grain to uh, continue to grow for the Kentucky whiskey producers. It's all about sustainability. Now, I don't know if you girls know, but corn is incredibly hard on soil. Yeah. yeah. It draws lots of yeah. nutrients out. Mm -hmm. So what's happening here is they're looking for a third crop so they can rotate. So right now they grow corn, and the next year they grow soybeans. And then they go back to corn yeah. and back to soybeans. By adding rye, rye helps the soil because it adds nutrients back. It makes can sense. actually it's, get be plowed under and act as fertilizer. Makes sense. It's kind of like the Midwest because I noticed like soybean fields kind of yeah. alternate with yeah. that corn. Yeah. So it's a it's a time sort of thing. Cool. It also provides a third cash crop for the farmers. That's kind of a cool thing. Let's, let's hope it works out well. My second story, uh, it's titled, Reminder, Selling Highly Allocated Items Fairly. This past Thursday, June 22nd, the Ohio Liquor Commission, the OHLQ, sent correspondence to email subscribers stating objectives in selling highly allocated products fairly. They've identified some challenges in their current program, and they've outlined practices for their distribution points, their stores, going forward. The OHLQ website states, OHLQ puts Ohio customers first. We ensure that liquor prices are fair and consistent across Ohio and competitive with other states. The site goes on, bringing rare and small batch products to Ohio. OHLQ aggressively pursues rare and premium products to beat out other states and markets for limited supply bottles. When products are sent to Ohio in extremely limited quantities, we hold bottle lotteries to make sure all Ohioans have an equal opportunity to purchase these rare bottles. This sounds a lot like what Idaho does. We yeah. have a lottery system. We are a control state. So all of our prices are fair if we're going by MSRP. That's Is right. Ohio a control state? Yes. Interesting. The current program isn't working. Many patrons, people like you and me, have voiced concerns which prompted this email. It says in the email, through customer complaints regarding unavailability of allocated bourbon, an inventory audit of agency retail sales transactions of the allocated bourbon identified improper retail case sales. Now, when they're saying case sales, they mean multiple bottles in a case going to one retail transaction, which means that somebody was buying a case of bourbon at a time. 
In some instances, multiple case sales were going to individual customers. They also wrote, it's alarming because we have sent many communications to the agencies regarding the selling of one bottle per customer. As a result, some agencies may face termination and others with severe sanctions. So what does this mean for us? Us as consumers, in theory, we should be able to find more product because now it's not being hoarded by individuals. In Ohio. In Ohio. They also write in their email, this communication serves as your reminder. This practice is forbidden and is not in line with OHLQ's main objective of selling highly allocated products fairly. They also state that they'll continue to monitor these sales and transactional data to make sure that this stays in place. Now, I follow several different RSS feeds, and one of those feeds is Reddit, and immediately upon this coming out, Reddit users in Ohio blew up, and they said they're taking a very pessimist view of wait and see. But then there were some that offered some potential solutions. And one of them I really like. It said that, hey, I recently moved from Ohio to Alabama. Alabama scans my driver's license on allocated products. Then the system locks me out of making another purchase for the next 24 hours. Some agreed with that and said maybe we should even propose monthly limits. And then others said, hey, one per week would stop people from moving from store to store to store. All seem to agree it's the collectors and the resellers who are causing the problems. So the whole idea why I put this story in here is there are 17 states that have allocations that are control states. And across the nation, we all know of people that hoard. So I just wanted to throw that out there that there is a state that apparently is trying to fix their problem. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but I, for one, am going to keep paying attention to this. Interesting. My, my last story is Crystal Glassware manufacturer Glencairn Crystal has launched a campaign that states, you wouldn't serve a gourmet meal on a paper plate. Why would you serve your whiskey in a poor quality glassware? Specifically, don't destroy your brand. Your whiskey deserves better. (laughs) So they're really pushing this. They're pushing it with distillers. They're pushing it with regular customers. So much so that if you were to go to Glencairn website today, you'll see a a way for you to put your own logo on your own glassware. Yeah, Hmm. we've we've seen that many times. We even have some for uh, the whiskey group. Here yep. in Boise, BWE is on yep. a couple of our Glen Cairns. Oh, yep. yeah. Yep. That is true, yeah. Yep. So don't destroy your brand and drink out of a, a glass that you really enjoy. Now, I we've talked about it before. We like Wex. We like our Glen Cairns. We drink out of mason jars. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, certainly, you know, want to reiterate here, not sponsored. But, you know, I appreciate what Glen Cairns trying to do. They're beautiful glasses. They're ubiquitous glasses. Yep. Mm-hmm. Everybody who drinks whiskey knows the Glencairn world, owns one or two, 
has broken one or two. Or five. Or five. Or however many. Eight. However, or... yep, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but they're good glasses. I personally don't think they are the only glass, no. though. And I, I think that you can have a stellar pour with a stellar experience coming out of just about anything. You True. know, I, I will drink out of a jelly jar. I will drink out of a mason jar. You could probably get me to drink out of a red solo cup and I will be just <laughs> fine. Let yeah. me just say that. As always, you can go to our website, whiskeyfortheages.com, to see citations, sources, and other release and additional news stories for more details. Girls, I've had fun this episode. What'd you think? Should we do think, it again? I, I think so. Yeah. I think that Laura brought up a really good idea with, you know, this being era to era. Era to thing. era. Yeah. yeah. There's, yeah. A, there's so much here. And spoilers, I mean, like the Food Drug Administration and how that's related to bourbon. Oh, yeah. my goodness. I mean, there's just so much to talk about with history. And it's law. a lot of fun. Yeah, and law. So it, much it's everywhere. law comes from whiskey in America. And you said before that you think that there should be, what, a history of bourbon? I think bourbon should be taught, or at least whiskey should be taught in high school. Because <laughs> everything, to, everything to is history. tied to whiskey. Yeah. I mean, we looked at the pilgrims today. At, were you ever taught that they drink beer? No. Did you I ever know why they, they called it a public house? The taverns? Or that George Washington had a ration for his troops about this. And I mean, he had to find some way to convince those soldiers to cross the Delaware yeah. where it's freezing cold. <laughs> okay, we've got one more episode in this series, episode 10. In a couple weeks, we will be reviewing a Colonel E.H. Taylor Barrel Proof Batch 10 on air, and you'll get to hear our first tastes. Yep, we put out a poll um, a few weeks ago. We put it all over a bunch of our social medias. Um, and the response was definitely a desire to see this particular bourbon reviewed. Thank you all very much. I see you listened to our first episode or two where I made that plea to pick the old <laughs> Colonel Taylor. So thank you very much for that. We're very excited for it. I think it'll be a great way to round out our season. Definitely. And please do feel free to continue reaching out to us. We've had some feedback in these last couple episodes, which has been really great. We love to build our, our community. We want to really engage with you guys. So please continue to do that. Keep asking questions. Keep recommending things to us. What kind of critiques can you give us for, for what we're doing? What you want to see the next season? Because, you know, we're going to be thinking about that here pretty soon. Please consider leaving a comment, leaving a like, subscribing, all of those fun things that you hear every social media person do. <laughs> awesome. Yep. Yeah, and, um, you know, we're on Podbeam, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Player Radio, Samsung Podcast App, Podchaser, and even Boomplay. So plenty of platforms to choose from to listen and get connected with us. Um, we're having a lot of fun with it. It's awesome. And again, thank you so much for listening in. As we do each episode, we give our glasses a nice click and cheer. Let's do it again, girls. 
See you in a couple weeks. Cheers.